Tuesday Night Mystery Club. Hello and welcome to the Tuesday Night Mystery Club. I am your host, Caitlin McCluskey, and today I am joined with my good friend, Nikki, who is one of the only people I know that actually plays Animal Crossing, so she is cool. Woo! Hello. (laughs) I'd also like the record to show that I've actually never read an Agatha Christie. I've read other mystery novels, but this is like my first uh, foray into it, so... That's a that's a good um good disclaimer. <laughs> they're uh, they're tough even for me. I read them and I can't guess anything. So perfect. Any 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 even if you guess some of the small details, that will be a feat. Yeah, I'll feel accomplished. Same for anyone listening at home. <laughs> Today I am going to be telling you the story of After the Funeral, another Agatha Christie novel, and this one was written in 1953, so one of her later books, which cool. means. I don't know, cars are a bigger deal than in her earlier books and things like that. <laughs> Be gone horses and carriages. Okay. Yep. <laughs> it's also, uh, maybe you can tell us more about this, Nikki, but maybe th- was there an economic downturn after the wars? Money seems to be a really big issue in this book. I mean, wars are always uh, great for economies, so probably. <laughs> so let's get started. We um, This book starts right away. The death has already happened before the book starts. So gotcha. uh, you don't have to wait long for the murder. Um, it starts with the butler getting, he's getting the house ready for the Abernethy family to return home from the funeral and the cremation, which they've been at. Um, so he's kind of reminiscing about old times and how all these like kids used to be in the house and it was so vibrant and playful, but over the years kind of everyone moved out and married and it's just been this old man living here this whole time. And now he's dead. Okay. So the old man is the one that died. Yes, the only so the, sole resident of the house. Yeah. the It was just him. His, he wasn't even that old. Let's say he was like somewhere between 60 and 70, which is why the death was kind gotcha. of sudden for the family. Um, because he didn't seem particularly old, but he did have a heart condition. So the doctor wasn't surprised. Okay. Um, the doctor gave him about, I think, two to three years to live. Um, so this this was still sudden, but it wasn't out of the ordinary. Okay. Um. So this, the, the guy who died, his name is Richard Abernethy. And so it's the Abernethy family that's kind of all gathered for the funeral. And it's going to be the main focus for the story. Gotcha. So um, the, oh, the builder of the house had been Cornelius Abernethy. And why that's important is because he's kind of the father. And his son, Richard, had inherited the house. But um, some of his brothers and sisters are still alive. So it's that kind of like level of their... Richard Abernethy isn't like he isn't the father figure. He's he's a brother or sister, so he's kind of the same age as some of these people. Gotcha. Okay. So maybe some jealousy over who inherited the house. Okay. 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 Yeah. Yeah. You're exactly right. Um. So he was the oldest son, and I think he was much older than his siblings. There were six children altogether, with with Richard being the oldest. Um. And he had kind of I think taken over the house and also taken over a little bit of taking care of his younger siblings. Okay. Um. With six children, I think, um, I'm not sure how how old the youngest would have been when the when the dad died, but maybe somewhere between like around six or something like that. Wow. Okay. Um. So yeah. So now we'll. I'll just. I'll go through the funeral party. So everyone who had been at the funeral and kind of is the main person in the story. So first we have Mister Entwistle, and he is the lawyer, Richard's lawyer, kind of the family lawyer in general. 
Okay. Um, so he's in charge of the state. I think he's he's actually also kind of old. Like he's between sixty and seventy, which is why he's like, oh, Richard wasn't old because he's not old in his mind, right? <laughs> gotcha. Um, but he he's retired, but he's this is like an old friend, so he's come back to take care of the estate for them because it was a friend. Just one last job. Gotcha. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, it's like a movie. <laughs> then we have um, Mrs. Helen. Abernethy, she had married one of the one of the brothers, Leo Abernethy, but he's now dead. So she's gotcha. she's like the sister-in-law, Helen. Married to Richard's um the second oldest brother, Leo, and who's now deceased. So Leo isn't gonna factor into this, but just know that Helen is um sept sister, I guess. No, no, that's wrong. Sister-in-law. Sister-in-law, yeah. Okay. Sister-in-law. And she was Richard really liked her. They they all, all three of when Leo was alive had a really good relationship. Okay. To get along. Yeah. So then we have Mode. So she, again, is a sister-in-law, but her husband, Timothy, who is um, one of Richard's brothers, is still alive. He's just like an invalid. So he didn't come to the funeral because he can't really leave the house. Okay. So we have um, two sisters-in-law, Helen and Mode, And then the last surviving sister, like actual sister, her name is Cora Lansquinet. Okay. So she originally had been an Abernathy and then had married a French painter, Pierre Lansquenet. Pierre is now dead, so it's only Cora surviving. A lot of dead people. Wow, okay. Yeah, a lot of dead people. So of the of the six siblings that originally lived in the house, Richard just died, and the only two surviving blood-related siblings are Timothy and Cora. Timothy is married to Maude, and Helen is just a sister-in-law that's surviving. Uh, can I ask, do we know... Like you said, Timothy was an invalid. Has he always been like, like what happened to him? Do we know what happened to him? So we at this point in the book, we don't know. I do you want like some okay. some tidbits before we actually get there? Sneak peek. Sure. Sure. <laughs> he. <laughs> I, I, we're not really sure how he's an invalid. I think it's heart problems, but you kind of get the idea that he's playing them up. He's not really like an invalid. He can get around and do whatever uh, he wants okay. to do. He just likes being pampered by his wife. Gotcha. So who's to, who's to say is there really anything wrong with him? But he's not sure. at a funeral okay. is, is all I'm getting at. The, I'm spending a lot of time on this because there's a lot of people. Um, now we have the nieces and nephews. So these are the next generation of the like kind of more like yep. young people who are all maybe like 20 to 30. Um, all of them are um, kids of deceased siblings of Richard Abernethy. Wow. Okay. <laughs> so it doesn't that doesn't matter it's just to say that all of the people that are alive right now are not their parents but they are like aunts and uncles to them that's helpful yeah so first we have george crossfield so he is a nephew um he's unmarried he's single he's a lawyer and he's kind of a lawyer at an unrep- unreputable firm so maybe doing some shady business we're not sure of it yet gotcha that's george and then we have rosamond and her husband, Michael Shane, so the Shanes, Mrs. and Miss Shane, and they're both actors. Michael Shane is kind of known to be probably a better actor. He is like, he's really, I think they call him like beautiful. Like he's, he's well known on the stage okay. um, and they do plays, not movies. And um, she is, Rosamond is beautiful, but she's not that great of an actor. Gotcha. Okay. So he I think carries at, at one point. Yeah, I think at one point they describe her, she's ham on the stage. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, okay. Yeah, so that's them. And then the last two are Susan and her husband, Gregory Banks. 
So Susan is the Abernethy and her husband, Gregory Banks, is married into the family. Right. Um, Susan has a very strong personality. She's also, they don't call her beautiful, but they say she's like, she's pretty. And she's also like definitely smarter than her cousin, Rosamond. Gotcha. Um, like sharper. Yeah. Um, and then the family kind of thinks that she married beneath her. She married like a chemist's assistant. Interesting. Okay. Which Nikki can relate to. She's been a chemist's assistant in pharmacy. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the glamour. Yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, they, they, she's very in love with him, but they feel like he's not of the right, like he, I don't know. Breeding. She should have married a lawyer, whatever. Right, right. So they get back from the funeral to the manor. Uh, I don't know if it has a name. I'm just going to call it the manor throughout this. Yeah. But the main, the main house. And they all have lunch together. And then they go into the library for coffee. Um, and so it's, they keep, this, this room comes up a bunch. It's called the green drawing room. And it's called that because it has this green malachite table in the middle with like wax flowers on it. And it's like that kind of um, old school decor. Right. Malachite's like a type of rock. I had to look it up. Yeah, no, I, I do know what that looks like, actually. Okay, okay. Um, and so Cora, Cora immediately asks if she was left anything in the will, um, to which Entwistle, the lawyer, kind of remark, remarks that it's typical of Cora to kind of speak out of turn. And so they're all kind of like, there's some look backs in their childhood and thinking about how, wow, this is so, like, Cora was always the person who, like, spoke uncomfortable truths, but she just kind of, like, she had this way of like cocking her head and looking up through her bangs. Like she was all like cute and shy and then saying these things. Right. And there, it seemed like she couldn't hold back from saying them. Like it was that kind of personality. And she still hasn't grown out of that is kind of the point. Like she's yes. still asking yeah, so she's bold questions. Yes. So she's 50. Um, but she's, yeah, still has this kind of like, they call it like, like a childlike personality sometimes. Okay. So throughout this conversation, she asked several more times, did her brother leave for anything? So it's kind of uncomfortable for everyone, but they're also just putting up to like, oh, it's just Cora. Right. Cora being Cora. So the will states that the estate is to be broken into six equal parts and those will be divided. Four of them will go in full to Timothy, who's the uncle, George, Rosamond, and Susan, the three surviving niece, uh, niece and nephews. Mm-hmm. And then the other two parts are to be left in trust. And then the income from that trust paid out to Cora Lansquenet and Helen Abernathy yearly. Okay. So the reasoning, I think, is that Helen is not technically related. So she should only get the yearly sum. Right. And then same with uh, Cora is related. She is an Abernathy by birth. But I think it's this idea of like she's not capable of handling her own money and isn't like, I don't know, smart enough. Yeah, um, yeah. So he he prioritizes the nieces and nephews bef- that generation before he prioritizes like yeah. So, so they all get the same amount of money, but the nieces and nephews get it all up front, whereas um, Helen and Cora just versus, it's like, all put in trust payment. and just income is paid. Gotcha. Yeah. So they'll get like I think I think they say like four thousand dollars a year or something like that. Okay. Um. So in 1953 money, whatever that is. Yeah, it's pretty significant. <laughs> So then Maud and Helen talk of how sudden the death was and Cora blurts out, but he was murdered, wasn't he? And this kind of shuts up the whole family. Cora blurts this out. Okay. Cora blurts this out and everyone's like, what are you talking about? Because this has not been suggested until this point. And so they're like, what are you talking? No, he wasn't. And so everyone kind of clearly gets mad at her and she like, um, so she kind of, she kind of freaks freaks out a little bit and she says it was very stupid of me but I didn't I I didn't think from what he said 
And so it's that line of like what he said that kind of is going to come back up later. Right. Who she'd been talking to. Yeah. So then Mr. Entwistle is, now it's it's later in the day, everyone's going home. So Mr. Entwistle is taking the train home and he's thinking about what Cora said. And he was kind of thinking that it was fine when she was a child, but that it's very disconcerting now when you're 50 to blurt this out. So kind of what you were saying before, that's that's what he's thinking. Right. And he, it occurs to him that oh, she always typically blurted out unwelcome truths. And then that word hits him. He's like, truths. That's what was so weird about it is that she normally said what was true. So it's not that she's a compulsive liar. Yeah. Okay. No, no. There was, they tell this story of, um, she, she asked, why is the maid getting so fat? She bumps into the table when she's handing us things. And it turns out the maid was pregnant. Classic. Okay. Scandal. Yeah. So yeah, just to give you some idea. And then he, he's kind of thinking that it's the Richard had been given by the doctor two to three years to live. So it was, it was sudden that he died now instead of two years from now. Right. Okay. So that's that's the lawyer's opinion. And now we move to in the same train, all three of the cousins and their um, husbands are sitting. So there's five of them. They're all sitting in a third class cabin and they're kind of discussing what happened as well. Um, and kind of the vibe you get from all of them is that this money was very needed for all of them. They all are very much in need of cash. Right. Okay. So we'll get into that more later. But that's you get this vibe from all of them. Motive. <sighs> exactly. <laughs> Then, <laughs> then we have Maude Abernethy. So she's the sister-in-law married to Timothy. And she's thinking about how her husband is going to be so upset that the money wasn't all given to him because he was the only surviving son. So she's thinking that he's going to be like that. I deserve to have that money. And then when I died, it should be split up between the younger generation. So he's not going to be happy at all. Okay. Yep. So some jealousy there. And then we have Helen's point of view. She's staying at the house to get things um, in order to be sold because the estate will be sold and all of its possessions auctioned off to make money to kind of be divided up. Gotcha. She's also thinking that this money is going to be very helpful. Um, And I think that was like, she's again, her husband's died. Who knows what her income has been. Um, And she's again, thinking about to the future. Gotcha. Oh, and so then she has this kind of like thought where she's thinking about uh, when Cora said that, like, well, wasn't he murdered when everyone was sitting in the in the drawing room around the table. And she suddenly realizes that something felt wrong while she was in the room there, but she can't put her finger on it with whether it was like a person or it was a phrase or it was like some action. She She's not sure, but it felt really weird. Something was off. Okay. Yeah. So uh, this, again, at the same time, we've kind of we're kind of getting everyone's perspectives after this funeral's happened. We have Cora is at a train station and she's having tea, and she's kind of thinking to herself that she purposely didn't take the same train back as the rest of her relatives because she doesn't want to have to talk to them anymore. Interesting. Okay. <laughs> and she is also thinking this is going to be so nice. I think as soon as she was told that she would get money, she was like, "Oh, goody, I can go travel to this place." And so she's thinking about whatever that place was. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. So the next day, Mr. Entwistle, he gets up and he's kind of having this feeling that he really needs to go see Cora because he's a little unsettled about her comment and wants to kind of see if he can get more information out of her. It does seem like um, something he, that would prompt more further investigation. Yes, exactly. But he want, he doesn't want to do it and make her feel like she's one. So he wants to do it in such a way that like seems natural that he has to go there. So he's going to go there to get her to sign papers or something. Okay. So he does, not that day, he kind of like sits down and does the cross whatever, whatever. The day passes. And then in the afternoon or the evening, I think in the evening, he gets a phone call from his lawyer firm. And they they say, 
Cora Lansquinet has been murdered. <gasps> Gasp. And this is, yeah. And this is no, like, what she murdered, what she not. No, she, her face was smashed in with a, with a hatchet. That is brutal. Okay. Yes. Very brutal. And it hap- they think it happened between 2 to 4.30 p.m. that afternoon. And the window had been smashed in and some trinkets had been taken. So they're wondering, was it like a break, break and enter robbery murder thing? Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, things are picking up. So Mr. Entwistle goes to visit the house in, this is Cora's house in Lightchit, St. Mary is the name of the village. And so Cora had lived with, um, this comes up a lot in Agatha Christie novels where some woman will live with a companion and it's typically another like middle-class woman and they just live together. Okay. Um, And in this case, and I think in a lot of cases, the companion is being paid to kind of help out with things, whether that be like secretarial work or cooking or things like that. But it's kind of different in every case. Got it. Okay. Okay. So Cora has this companion and what had happened was the companion had gone out to, um, Cora had asked her to go return some library books in a nearby town. And so that's where she, she had left it around to, to catch the bus stop, the bus at the bus stop in town had gone to the library and had come home around 4.30, which is when she discovered the body. Okay. Sorry, she had come home around 5 p.m. when she discovered the body. Okay. Um, but when the doctor arrived, he said it couldn't, it, he's placing the death, death somewhere between 2 and 4.30. Okay. So, and also, um, so the companion's name is Miss, Miss Gilchrist. She's a middle-aged woman. And she tells them that Cora had been taking a nap at the time and had taken um, like some Advil or some pain relievers before she'd gone to bed because she had been complaining of a headache all day. Interesting. Yeah. So Cora was killed in basically in bed while she was asleep. So she didn't like struggle or anything like that. Interesting. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then the last thing that is interesting is that the trinkets that were stolen were found outside the house in a bush. Bizarre. Okay, so it was like made to look like a robbery, but then clearly not that wasn't the goal because they dropped all the trinkets. So it exactly like, the murder was more the point. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. So that's and that's what the police are thinking too. They're like, this seems off. Like, is it they're kind of thinking, is it possible that someone like wanted to steal things but then lost their head and got scared and threw them away? And then, you know, you're reading this and going like, nah, <laughs> she was just killed. <laughs> So um, Entwistle is kind of looking around the house and it's just full to the brim of paintings. So at, uh, Cora had married this French, French painter, painter Pierre. Right? Makes sense. Yeah. But he wasn't very good. And I, it was the same thing where the family thought she had married beneath her. So they didn't approve of the marriage. So she had kind of like, um, what's it called when you isolate yourself or like cut yourself off from the family? Oh, like alienate? Yeah. Estrange? Estrange. So, yes. Yeah, so she was kind of estranged from the family, kind of of her own doing. She wanted nothing to do with them because they didn't like her husband and she loved her husband. Gotcha. So the house is full of his, like the husband's paintings, and they're kind of described as being particularly ugly. And then it also, she, she collected art and I think she also painted watercolor herself. So it's just crammed to the brim with like not great art. The dream, really. (laughs) So Mr. Entwistle, he also tells the police inspector who the beneficiaries are of the will. So the way it works is because Cora had only been been left to trust with a yearly income, her, now that she's died, her portion of the will now gets distributed amongst the other five beneficiaries. So she, 
she can't leave it in her own will, this money. it's It's been provided for in Richard Abernathy's death and his will. Okay. Mm-hmm. And then we also kind of, from Mr. Antwistle's point of view, we kind of get an idea of what Miss Gilchrist, the companion, is like. And he kind of describes her as like a twittering woman who um, explained that... So uh, Miss Gilchrist explains, she, she tells Mr. Antwistle, he's kind of trying to get some information out of her because he'd wanted to ask Cora questions and now he can't. Right. And so he finds out from her that Richard Abernathy had come to visit Cora three weeks prior to his death. And this is, again, they had been estranged. They might not have seen each other in 20 years. And suddenly he shows up at the doorstep. Suspicion and they're both dead now. Yes. So there's there's a lot of, like, questions around that. Okay. So Antwistle goes home after visiting um, the house. And in the evening, he gets a call from Mode to say that her husband, Timothy, is very worked up about the death of his sister, clearly. And would Mr. Entwistle please come and answer some questions, like come visit and like stay the night the following day. Okay. So he agrees. He agrees and he says he'll come the following afternoon. And he explains what the will, how the will had worked out and that, um, that Cora had left some of her sketches that she had done to Miss Gilchrist and that the rest of her of her property, which is like he says, max five hundred pounds, is uh, left to Susan, and so you're like, interesting. Mm. This is the the niece. Yeah. So the why just married Susan? to a chemist? Yes, very interesting. Yeah, a chemist assistant. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's because it makes a difference. Yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> So the next morning, Mr. Entwistle goes to see, he goes to see all the cousins individually. And kind of the vibe you get is that they, again, all really clearly need money and are asking if they can have advances. Because normally when a will and like money is left, it takes like months to like maybe a year for you to actually receive that money. And But the lawyers can give you an advance of a smaller sum. So you can use it right away. So they all ask for it. When he goes to see George Crossfield, he gets this, like, um, he gets the vibe that George Crossfield has been playing with his client's money. So again, he's a lawyer. He, he feels like he's been um, gambling it and has lost a lot of money. And that's why he needs the advance. That's his desperation for the money. Okay. Yeah. Susan, when he goes to see Susan, she finds out that she's about her new inheritance from Cora. And so right away, she decides that she's going to go visit the house and like sort things out to be sold or kept or what whatnot. Right. So he takes, and Isil takes the train to Mode's and Timothy's village and Mode picks him up from the train station and kind of explains, she's talking about how her husband is an invalid and everything that's wrong with him and all the things he can't do, et cetera, and how she takes care of him and all of this. And he kind of, I think he says it for her that um, this invalid husband is like a child that she never had. Okay. Okay. So that's so it's this, interesting. Yeah. So it's like she she wanted to be a mother but couldn't have children and this is her child. Can I also clarify that, so Timothy, yeah. you're told that Timothy is really worked up over the death of his sister or the, like the murder of his sister, Cora. But yeah. they've been estranged for forever, like why is it kind of yeah. odd that he's so worked up about someone he hasn't really cared about or like talked to in years? Yes. Okay. Everything about this guy seems a little weird because just the idea of someone faking that they have a disease, right. not the disease, but that they're an invalid to not be able to do anything. Like I just, I can't get on that mindset at all, but yes, it does seem weird. Gotcha. It, it's possible that it's just mode saying that he's more worked up than he is or like why can't why can't Ant Whistle answer these questions over the telephone? Why does he have to be there in person? Okay, 
Gotcha. So Entwistle goes up. Timothy's in his kind of room. He's had tea. He's had a nap, whatever. Mode says, this is the perfect time for you to see him. He's like going to be the most well-rested. So <laughs> Timothy tells him that he's really upset that he wasn't left everything in the will as the next of kin. So this is him kind of, ex- Mode was right. He is upset. And he explains that they're in a bad state in the house and would have had to move very soon if it wasn't for the money he was left. So again, it's this like really needed need it. For money. Okay. Yeah. So, and then from kind of the things he's saying and doing, this is, this is the point when you kind of go to be like, is he really an invalid? Because he's kind of getting mad and he like throws the blanket that's over his knees off of him and like gets up and starts pacing around the room and like gesticulating and things like that. And you're like, are you really that sick? Like, right, what's going yeah. on here? You didn't need a midday nap. No. And I think that's the point is like this, this part of the book has been written to say like, is he really an invalid? Maybe not. Gotcha. He also then says that he won't be able to go to Cora's funeral, of course, because he's an invalid, but that an, a wreath should be sent on their behalf by Mr. Entwistle. What a gesture. Everyone loves those, oh, yes. those wreaths. I would never go to my sibling's funeral. <laughs> Ridiculous. So maybe in the next day, a few days later, not clear, but Mr. Entwistle is clearly very unsettled by everything that's going on. So he calls upon Hercule Poirot, the famous detective. Did you see Murder on the Orient Express, the movie? No, I did not. I played the Nancy Drew game that was eerily similar. I'm just, I'm wondering, because that's, I'm, pit, I'm pit, when I picture him, I picture him in the newest movie version with his big <laughs> mustache. Okay, mustache, mustache. I'll write that in my notes. Mustache guy. So it's the famous Hercule Poirot that is an old friend of Mr. Entwistle. I think they had maybe worked on a case together in the past or something like that. And so Entwistle explains everything that's happened and kind of Poirot understands immediately what the problem is. It's the idea that this was a typical thing for Cora to tell an unwanted truth. And therefore, at the very least, Cora believed that Richard was murdered. Even if Richard wasn't murdered, Cora believed it. And the idea that she was then murdered is suggestive that something is wrong. Yeah, very wrong. Yeah. And so then they also both agree that there's no case for an investigation of Richard's death because the doctors, two, because he was cremated, both doctors signed off on um, the death certificate to say that there was no, like, that it was a natural death. And he's been cremated, so you can't look at the body. Um, so there's no way of telling if there was, like, if he was poisoned or, what, yeah, or whatnot. No able to no ability to fact check. No. So th- what, they're, what they're kind of getting at is that we can't investigate Richard Abernethy's death, but we can investigate Cora Lansquinette's death. But we should also, we should know... If the doctor of Richard thinks that there's no doubt that it was a natural death, then again, there's kind of no point. We, we would say that he isn't, but we need to find out from the doctor, is there even the slightest possibility that it could have been murder? Exactly. Okay. So he, Poirot tells Entwistle that it makes more sense for him to go see the doctor and ask him and um, to find out is there without a doubt that he couldn't have been poisoned. He also warns Entwistle that the Gilchrist woman, the companion, should not be left alone because he's worried that there might be an attempt on her life. Ooh, okay. She might know something. Yeah. They're thinking if Cora, if Cora knew something was murdered, could she know something and also be murdered? So that's kind of the thought process. Especially you mentioned that she had a visit, right? Three weeks prior, she had a visit from Richard yes. Abernathy. So like maybe she heard something she shouldn't have. Or Okay. You're, you're on the right, exact right track, Nikki. Love it. 
So the next day, the uh, Entwistle goes to see the doctor, and he is very frustrated that his death certificate is being questioned. He's kind of pissed, and so Entwistle's trying to calm him down. But he says that tampering with Richard would have been, sorry, tampering with Richard's pills to poison him would have been possible, but highly unlikely. So this is kind of like, okay, so we can't say that he wasn't poisoned. There's, there's, there's still a possibility. Okay, intrigue increases. Yep. Yes. And then while, since he's in town, um, he goes, Aunt Whistle goes to visit the manor and to talk to the butler. And because um, the butler had been there since all of these people were kids. Like he's like 80. He's actually, or 80 or 90. Like he's actually old. Gotcha. In that sense. Um, but he's he's seen things. He's been around. He's to, kind of to be trusted is the, uh, the sense you get. And he shares that after returning from Cora's house, this is after Richard returned three weeks ago, he had said... Uh, sorry, Richard had said, you can only say what you really think to someone of your own generation. They don't think you're fancying things as the younger ones do. Oh, interesting. Okay. So the, he was kind of saying, um, the butler is kind of telling Entwistle that Richard wasn't saying this to him directly. He kind of was just, he liked to, mur- he was, he liked to murmur. Like he was just in the room with him He's at the same time. Just chatting to himself. I get it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Something we all do. So Entwistle also takes, so Helen is still living in the house at that at this point because she's getting everything ready to be sold. Right. And he takes her into his confidence and tells her that he's hired Poirot. So he kind of, I think he, in his opinion, Helen is, uh, she's above suspicion. There's no way this is her. She really, really liked Richard. There's no way she would do this. Right. Like there's okay. that kind of idea. Right. But he kind of wants to get her opinion as well. And she's on the same page that she thinks that what Cora said was really weird. And she tells him about that funny feeling that she had about something not being right. He tells her if she can't remember it, don't force it because she'll lose it. But that if he if she ever thinks of what it was to call him as like right away. Okay. We're talking about the green drawing room specifically. Like that odd feeling correlated with that room. Yes. that uh, With that room and those people while Cora was saying he was murdered, wasn't he? Gotcha. Okay. Perfect. Mm-hmm. So Susan Banks, um, she arrives in Lightship St. Mary, and she was going, again, to kind of sort through the house, um, pack things up, et cetera, et cetera, especially since she's inherited things. The house is actually rented, so she's not inheriting the property, just what's in the property and whatever money um, Cora had. Okay. So she arrives, and she finds Miss, Miss Gilchrist is getting ready for the inquest that's supposed to be that day. Susan had also come for the inquest and the funeral that would be the next day. So she gets there, sees Miss Gilchrist. And Miss Gilchrist kind of gives her a little tour of the house. And so Cora remarks that the artwork looked to be painted from postcards. So that Cora's watercolor sketches is what she's saying. Um, look like postcards of the seaside. And this deeply upsets Miss Gilchrist, who enforced that Miss Lens Gwinnett only painted from the real view, from reality. And Susan's kind of like, yeah, sure. Okay. Belittling her artwork. Um, How dare she? Yeah. I... It's just to give you an idea of maybe what, what the pictures kind of look like. Okay. So Mr. Entwistle is also at the inquest. And afterwards, the three of them, that's Entwistle, Susan, and Miss Gilchrist, go to lunch together in one of the restaurants in town. And he shares that he is really worried about Timothy and Mode because Mode has just fallen down the stairs and broken her ankle. And he's worried because, again, she pampers Timothy so much. And Tim- like she's not she can't go upstairs. Like They're just worried for her. Yeah, geez, that's a lot of, she's a lot of incidents properly. happening in one time. Yeah. <laughs> 
So Susan and Miss Gilchrist go home, and shortly after they arrive home, a man arrives who says that he was a friend of Cora's. His name is Alexander Guthrie. And he says that Cora had asked him to come. He was like an art appraiser, I think. So Cora had asked him to come appraise her art because what she would do is she'd buy art at like church sales or country sales for like a dollar or a pound or two. And then because she was trying to find like something like really like um, like actual famous art. Gotcha. But she didn't really have the eye for it. So this Guthrie man, he was like, I didn't, I didn't come before because I was like, she's not going to have found anything. But now that she's dead, I feel guilty that I didn't come. And so I just wanted to, for my own like guilt and conscience, I wanted to look over the art and make sure there's nothing of value here, which okay. there isn't. He kind of goes through, he kind of goes through things. I know it was a little exciting. It was like, oh my God, there's going to be some art, but no. Yeah. I was going to say, is there a hidden gem? Like this amused, like million pound painting? No. Okay. <laughs> she had a year before he had been over and she had found a painting that was worth um like 40 pounds that she had bought for pounds so she had he says that that was probably like beginner's luck okay so then when he leaves um miss gilchrist is kind of closing the door and she notices a parcel that's been dropped by the door and she's really pleased because she's found that someone has sent them wedding cake which i guess is um I don't know if you've heard of that before, but I guess as a tradition, if you weren't invited to the wedding, they might set, you might get sent wedding cake afterwards. Right. Okay. Yes. Um, so she brings it in. I think maybe they're eating it. Uh, just Susan. Oh, sorry. Just Cora. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> just Miss Gilchrist is eating the cake. She offers some to Susan, but Susan declines. And while they're doing that, Susan is kind of questioning her about her uncle's visit the three weeks ago to Cora. So it's kind of, you know, all the family is a little bit curious, but what was this? visit about and she admits that she had heard them she'd heard kind of small bits of their conversation um, and they had been talking about Richard's health and certain fancies he had about potentially she kind of gives the idea she was saying he had fancies that someone was poisoning him Ooh, so he suspected okay yeah so she she didn't hear the full conversation but that was kind of like the gist that she got and then she also asks Susan if Susan would write her a letter of recommendation because, like, she's trying to find a new post. But could she please not mention the name? Because she thinks if if a murder is associated, she's like, even though I didn't commit it and, like, even if they find the man who did it, like, people will still think, like, I was in the house and that it would be bad. That's fair enough. So Susan real- Susan's a smart girl. She realizes immediately she should go help Mode and Timothy. Like, Mode needs this help. He's just broken her ankle. Oh, genius. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so she calls them up and they agree and Miss Gilchrist agrees and so that's perfect. But it also means keeping Miss Gilchrist close, which is also interesting. Okay. Yeah, that's a good point. So they go to bed. Susan has kind of said that she's fine sleeping in the bed where Cora was murdered, which seems crazy to me, but that's terrifying. She's a tough woman. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I think she had said it was all right, but then when she actually goes to sleep, she's finding it very difficult to fall asleep. So I think she's, it's one of those, like, she's, Maybe dozing off for a few minutes, waking up, dozing off, etc., etc. So sometime in the middle of the night, she hears groaning from somewhere else in the house. And so she kind of gets up to check, like turns her light on and is like, what's this? And she finds that Miss Gilchrist is clearly in a lot of pain and is vomiting everywhere. And Miss um, Gilchrist insists they call the doctor. Whereas Susan's kind of like, no, we can wait till the morning. But Gilchrist is like, no, 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 I need a doctor now. That cake was poisoned. Okay. Hey. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Sweet. 
When the doctor sees Miss Gilchrist, he immediately becomes grim. I think before he had thought, they're like, why are you calling me and getting me out of bed? But he sees her and is like, let's get her in an ambulance. So they do that. So she goes away. And then I think Susan just goes back to bed. And the next morning is the funeral. So it's just Susan and Mr. Entwistle that are the mourners. I think a lot of people from town have showed up, but they're the only ones who are kind of connected with Cora. Gotcha. Then afterwards, Susan goes home and the doctor comes by to see her. And he's kind of asking like, so what did, did you both eat the same things? You both ate the same things. And Susan's like, yeah, I'm pretty sure we had everything the same. And he says that it was arsenic poisoning. And when he says that, Susan kind of realizes, remembers about the wedding cake and tells him and they pin it on the wedding cake. Wow. Who poisons a wedding cake? What a message. Jeez. Yeah. They, I think they kind of get to that later, but they kind of say it, it would raise no suspicion because like that's a thing that people do is send yeah, a wedding cake. Yeah, it's a common so, practice to send a slice of wedding cake, so it's not suspicious or like weird. And it's also they're kind of they're kind of saying to an old spinster the idea that someone remembered them and sent them wedding cake would be like this kind of like delight. Right. So Susan, the doctor leaves, and then Susan is going through her aunt's papers when she is frightened by George walking in on her. So her cousin, the gambling lawyer. Yeah. So he says that he had been trying to come to the funeral, but his car had broken down. So he hadn't made it, but he thought he'd come by the house because he knew that she was around. And she was just reading a letter and he asked to read it. And one of the lines, and it's, um, it's a letter from Richard to Cora from right after he returned home from visiting her. Gotcha. So the kind of like main line is, please don't say anything to anyone about what I told you. It may be a mistake. Ooh. Yeah. So it's kind of that like, what, what, what were they talking about? The next day, so Susan's still sleeping over the next day. Um, Inspector Morton, who is kind of the police chief who gets assigned to the case, he comes by to ask Susan some questions. They're, they've been trying to find, was there any wedding cake left? And Susan's like, I didn't have any. I think she finished it. Like, we didn't find any around the house. And the inspector finds the rest of it under Miss Gilchrist's pillow. So apparently it's this, like, old wives' tale that if you put half a slice of wedding cake under your pillow, you'll dream of your future husband. There, I have actually heard of a similar, like, wives' tale, so yeah. it doesn't super surprise me, yeah. So, he was kind of, Susan's, like, shocked. She was like, Miss Gilchrist was still dreaming about her husband? And the police chief was like, yeah, I think she was embarrassed. That's why she didn't tell us about it. Okay. But I had a feeling. So, he finds the cake, and I think they, the police chief was kind of saying, thank goodness she didn't finish the cake, because I think that's the only reason she's alive, is that she that she believed this old wives tale it would have killed her otherwise wow okay otherwise it would have been enough or arsenic to kill her so now we go back to hercule poirot is in this mr Gobi's office and he's basically they describe him as he's a man who finds things out for a price okay so if you can if you can pay a lot of money he will find out whatever you need to know which is an interesting service how, yeah, what does that say on his business card? How can I become this all-knowing <laughs> person? It, he, they make it sound like only, like, influential politicians and kind of, like, the elite know about this guy. Okay. So I don't think he needs a business card. <laughs> so he has found out about all of the family members um, and what they were doing on the day that Cora was murdered. And he's basically found that they all had an opportunity to go to Leitch at St. Mary. Like, none of their whereabouts can kind of be sufficiently accounted for. Darn. Okay. Yes. So I'll tell you a little bit about that. So George had told, had said that he was at the races that day and betting on horses, but that had been a lie. They checked up. He wasn't there that day. So they're not sure where he was, but he was lying. Ooh. 
And then Mr. Shane, Michael Shane, the actor, he had said that he was meeting with theater people, but in reality, um, he had rented a car and driven somewhere where when they checked the miles was enough miles to make it to light St. Mary and back, but they're not sure where he went. Not a lying. Okay. Yeah. But that's, he had told his wife that. Okay. Mrs. Shane, Rosamond, her whereabouts are unknown. She had said like, quote unquote, she was out shopping, but they can't trace any, like, she would normally put stuff on her tab. She had added nothing to her tab that day. Like she had no purchases on her credit card or anything like that. So they can't kind of confirm or deny was she shopping. Gotcha. Then Susan Banks had also taken her card out all day. Um, they can't check the miles, but she was gone from like morning till evening. So again, enough time to to go out. She had also told Mr. Entwistle that that day she had just been home all day. So she's also lying. Jeez, these people. Okay. Right? I know. It's just, there's, there's no break for us. So then Mr. Banks, her husband, it's unknown. He says that um, he had been at home all day and there's no, again, like there's no checking up on that. So he could have been, but it's not like someone else saw him somewhere. Like there's no credibility. There's no real alibi if you can't, yeah, check it. Yeah. And then the other thing that they checked, they found out about him is that right before he had met his wife, Susan, he had been in a mental hospital for several months. Ooh. And they find out the reason for this is as this chemist assistant, uh, I think like a, a he had a woman had been rude to him in the store and so he had given her a like or the wrong prescri- pres- excuse me, the wrong prescription that had made her ill. Okay, so that is that is some messed up stuff. Okay. Yeah. Then we have Helen. Um she had gone to London to get clothes because she hadn't re- like now she knew she was going to be staying at the house for longer than she had expected. But again, going to London like would have taken a while. They can't they can't check up on it. Mode had left the manor that day. She had stayed overnight to help Helen and then was going home the following like on the day Cora was murdered and her car broke down during the day which the Mr. Gobi guy that finds things out, he says that the way the car was broken could have been a way that like Mode could have broken it herself as an excuse. And she goes out, like she gets to a hotel in the nearest village and um, she goes out all day. So she, they're saying she could have hitchhiked to the nearest town and taken the train. So basically everyone is still a suspect. This is. Yeah, exactly. And the problem is, is that not none of, a lot of these things don't sound likely like Mode breaking her own car but the idea that it's possible and so they can't eliminate her. Exactly. Gotcha. Yeah. And then the last one, the quote unquote invalid Timothy, I think he had been seen in town that day. So that was the thing is that when Mode wasn't around, he would go for walks or he'd go into town and buy himself things that he needed because he's not really that sick. And so right. he could have also left the house. Suspicious. So Poirot is home. Maybe the next day, Inspector Morton pays him a visit and admits that they don't think anyone in the community did it. They've kind of crossed everybody off that it could be. Everyone has an alibi or doesn't seem to fit in. And they are now looking for outside sources. And to the reason he's visiting Paro is because he had seen Paro at the inquest and is kind of wondering, why are you interested in this case? I know who you are. Like, I know, I know what kind of work you do. Why are you interested? Something else must be going on. Yeah. So Paro tells him all that he knows and that... Um, he had suspected that an attempt on Gilchrist's life was going to be made. And so he's kind of not shocked that that happened and is glad that she's alive. Mm-hmm. And then he also tells the um, police inspector that he has a plan to go to the manor respecting Unarco 
to quote unquote buy the place because now it's up for sale. And this UNARCO is a made up organization that he made that stands for the United Nations Aid for Refugee Center Organization. <laughs> oh, okay. Okay. So if it comes, it, he calls it UNARCO. It's just, it's, it's, he's giving himself like a disguise to be able to go to the house and um, talk to people without people knowing who he is. Oh, okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So Poirot gets to the manor and he's trying to find out like stuff from the servants who are there. So it's just the servants are in Helen who are still in the house. And he kind of has little success with that. They're not, people still like in this day don't want to talk to foreigners. Brutal. Okay. Yep. Um, so he's from Belgium as well. Just Belgian I don't moustache think I that guy. Before. Yeah. Belgian moustache guy. Yeah. Same notes. So what he does find out is that it's very easy to get into the house by the side door and go up to the master bedroom and be like in the master bathroom with the medication. He finds you can do that without anyone seeing you. Okay, well, that's poor, you know, architecture set up. <laughs> it's because it's, it's such a huge house and no one lives in it anymore, basically. Right. Okay. Um, so just if you do it at the right time when the gardeners are on lunch break, et cetera, et cetera. So again, it's this idea of like, you can't eliminate it as a possibility because it's, you can, it's, it was something he's able to do. Right. So then he speaks with Helen again, who's still living there. And because she's been told by Entwistle what's happening, Entwistle has let Helen know that Poirot is coming. So Poirot is speaking with Helen who reproachfully tells him that Richard had been disappointed with the younger generation, but it had been nothing serious. So she's, Poirot's kind of trying to get at, is there any reason they would want to kill him? And she's saying Richard was disappointed with their actions and like who they married, but not seriously. Like he did not care that much. Yeah. He like, he still included them in his estate. He wasn't like, yeah, he didn't, yeah. Estrange them or like not speak to them. Yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. So they are in the, the green drawing room where they have been that first day and Helen is going to, um, I think, pick up the, the wax flowers that had been on the table and replace them with she's just picked roses or something. And as she's doing that, Poirot asks if she, if Helen knew that Mr. Banks was in a mental institution. And so she's like clearly shocked and drops the vase and it shatters. And Poirot kind of apologizes, but I think maybe that was like the reaction that they wanted. Um, so they put, kind of put the broken pieces and the wax flowers away in the broken piece cupboard in the house. <laughs> <laughs> um, but that's, so, so Helen, he, he kind of assumes Helen has not, did not know that or she wouldn't have had that reaction. Right. Um, uh, and then Poirot convinces Helen to invite everyone to the manor. And this is, it's kind of like a guy so that he can meet everyone. He in, gets her to invite everyone to the manor so that they can pick out furniture that they want to keep before it's sold at auction. Right, so this is the excuse to bring everyone together again. Yeah, and to for Poirot to be able to meet them as his disguise of the Unarco guy. Gotcha. So I think they were going to invite everyone in two weeks, so over the course of that time we kind of hear from some people. So Miss Gilchrist, for instance, has been with Maud and Timothy for maybe a week or so, and they're kind of, we're seeing what life is like in the house. Um, Timothy does not like having her around. He... He's kind of upset that, like, he wants his wife to be doing these things. He doesn't have to interact with anyone else. And so even though his wife is clearly in pain, he doesn't want Miss um, Gilchrist bringing him his food. He wants his wife to be doing it. He wants Moe to do it. Wow, what a gem. Okay. Yeah, just such a jerk. He's also at this point complaining a lot about the painters and how the smell is just so bad for his heart. Yada, yada, yada. Complain, complain, complain. At this, so at this point, Helen calls and invites Maud and Timothy to stay at the house because of the paint. 
So this is like, they were worried that Timothy wouldn't come in the first place because just picking up furniture might not interest him. But maybe if he, because they know that he doesn't like the smell of the paint, they can offer for Mode and Timothy to live at the manor for a couple weeks while the decorators are working. Yeah, it's a good justification to actually make sure Timothy shows up. Exactly. So Helen says, oh, sorry, Helen asks Mode, and then Mode says that she'll speak with Timothy. And Timothy doesn't want to go. He's kind of upset about this, all of this. But Mode knows the like exact right strings to pull. And so she she's like, oh, well, the younger generation, they were going to pick through the furniture. And he's like, no, someone has to be there to appraise it or something like that. And he finally agrees. And he said, but says in a way of like, yes, this will be best for you, Mode. You really need a break. Like, this is this is the right thing to do. It's just so annoying to listen to. Classic. Okay. So once this is all arranged, um, they're planning on just having Miss Gilchrist stay at the house and watch over it. But she like breaks down crying and says that she's scared to be alone. And Which, like she, she won't enough. stay in the house by herself. Yeah, absolutely fair yeah. enough. Someone tries to poison her with an arsenic wedding cake. Like I, you gotta respect it. <laughs> you, you would do the same thing. Yeah. So now we see um, more from the cousin's point of view. George sees Susan just in the street going into an empty shop. So he kind of follows her in to see what she's doing and to say hi. And it turns out she, she kind of tells him that she's buying this. Um, it's like, a, it's like a storefront because she, that's what she'd wanted to do. She wants to start her own business. Uh, it was like a beauty, a beauty, um, beauty shop, like sell cosmetics. Interesting. Um, so it's going to be like a beauty business in the front. And then she's going to have a chemist lab for um, her husband, Greg in the back. So they of both kind of work together. That's an interesting combination. Yeah, they kind of, they talk of Susan of being, if like Richard Abernethy, he's like the head of the household, kind of, um, he was really b- good at business. Susan's like, she's the next closest to him. She's, she's inherited that. Good. Okay. Yeah, she has those traits. So this, her starting a business makes perfect sense to everybody. Okay. Then uh, George says that he, like, she he asks, are you going to be going to Helen's um, for the week uh, weekend to, like, pick up furniture? And Susan's like, yeah, of course I'll be going. And George says, yeah, I'm going too. I want to see the fights that are going to happen about the furniture. <laughs> Nothing like family. <laughs> yeah. So next we see, um, we hear from Rosamond and Michael. And they're at home. And Michael says that he's leaving to go meet with the same theater people that he was meeting with before. And... Rosamond calls him out. She's like, no, you're not. I know where you're really going. And Michael immediately kind of gets like terrified. And the reason she knows this is because she says, you said you were meeting Oscar before. I called Oscar. He hasn't seen you in months. So I know you're lying and I don't understand why you think you could lie to me. But I know where you're going. Okay. Yeah. So Michael kind of gets freaked out and says that she's been acting really strange recently. And she just tells him, yeah, I've been thinking about the future. And then kind of it's this, you get this idea that she doesn't normally think about things, but she thinks this is so important. And she's kind of dangling, like, this is her money, right? That she's inherited. Right. And what they were going to do with the money is put on a play. Like, they would put on the play themselves that Michael could have a star role in it. And she's kind of going, you really want this play to happen, don't you? Okay. So she's dangling this as a incentive to behave. Yeah, exactly. Can you guess where where she knows Michael's going? I mean, is he just like... Like, what's your first first instinct? My first instinct is just like, oh, he must be having an affair or something. Yeah, bang on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, great. Classic. We, we don't... We don't... It doesn't say that there, but that was also my first instinct. So I wanted to know if we're on the same page. <laughs> <laughs> it, it will... 
it, it, it's um, she she will tell I think someone later, but we'll get to that. But you you do yeah. kind of get this idea of like there's a woman there's another woman involved, even though it hasn't been talked about. Okay. So finally, the weekend comes when the family is going to be assembled, and Poirot takes on this Elias of Pontellier. So not important, but that's the name that he chose for himself. Okay. And so he's trying to have like one-on-one conversations with everybody. And so he speaks with Miss Gilchrist and she talks about how proud she is of the sketches that she's inherited from Cora. And also talks about the tea. She used to own a tea shop, but because of the, the second world war, it had like, she couldn't keep it open. And so it had gone under. Right. Um, but she'd all, she'd love to like own her own tea shop again. Then Susan dis, I think, all three of them having a conversation susan disses the art and says it was copied from postcards which again like um or that it something like that which miss gilchrist gets really pissed off about but then when she's one-on-one with poirot she tells him i found a postcard in my bedroom that was an exact picture of one of the sketches so like i'm not just saying this i know this okay at least one of the pictures right um, and she also tells Paro about her business and what what an opportunity money gives you is kind of this idea. Like, this is so great for me because I have this money. Suspicious talk. <laughs> it really is. <laughs> so Mode talks of her invalid husband and that it's so useful to have the like have Mrs. Gilchrist around and how like how great that's been. And kind of even how great it is that she they ended up bringing her with her to the manor because um now, like, Timothy can still have someone to bring him food whenever he wants. And they don't have to worry about, like, servants or whatever like that. Right. So throughout the weekend, Poirot has been using his kind of foreign nature to blend into the background. So he's been, like, really playing up the, his Belgian accent. He's been pretending not to understand conversations that people are having. And so this makes up so people kind of, like, he's sitting there, but no one's really talking to him. They're just kind of talking around him. He wants them to let their guard down and admit all the things that they've done. Yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So the only when he kind of he's he tells every time he talks to someone he tells them about Unarco, etc. And Rosamond is the only person who questions what is Unarco. And when he gives her an explanation, she's like, "Huh, I don't really like refugees." Whereas it's she's kind of like voicing the opinion that everyone has, but no one else is saying it. Brutal. Okay. Yes, it's kind of they they're kind of giving this idea of like Rosamond is kind of like how Cora was as well. Like maybe there's some similar genes there. Gotcha. So after the family's kind of given about 24 hours to look around the house at all the furniture and objects and stuff, they decide to sit down and um, kind of request certain items that they would like to have. It's almost like the bidding begins. Right. So the first fight starts around the spode dinner service, which I think is just a pattern on, on like the plates, etc. Yeah. Um, Timothy says that like he wants it and George says, oh, that's too bad. I already told Helen earlier today, like I, I put my name down for it. So like you're too late. And Timothy just gets so mad because he's like, I'm the older like generation. I should have first say, like, what are you talking about? And George, you can kind of clearly tell he's just doing this. To he, rile he doesn't want up. the spo dinner yeah. set. He only put his name down for it because he knew Timothy wanted it. Yeah, he just wants the fight. So that that fight goes off. Um, and I think George eventually kind of gives it up, but he first calls up um, that he just wanted to get a rise out of his uncle. Like, I think he tells him that. <laughs> He's not a great nephew. Yeah. The next fight is between Rosamond and Susan, who are fighting over that malachite 
malachite table in the green drawing room. And Susan's saying she wants it for pop of color in her beauty shop. And Rosamond wants it for to be a period piece in their next play. And then they're going to put like the wax flowers on top. So this fight is happening and Miss Gilchrist kind of tries to like calm things down. And she says, yeah, the green table looks so pretty with those wax flowers on it. Which this really upsets Susan because she's like, why are you taking her side type <laughs> deal? That goes on. That's fun. And then somehow nuns are kind of brought up. I think um, I, I haven't mentioned them too much in the story, but like there's this like repeat, repeating motif with nuns where they're coming to collect money. Um, and that was part of the reason that Miss Gilchrist was so scared because nuns had been there to collect money on the day that Cora was killed. And then when, um, when Mode and Timothy are planning to leave, there had been nuns at the door as well. So they're ta- they start talking about that and they're kind of talking about how similar all nuns look. And that's part of the reason she was scared. It's just like, was it the same nun right. in this part of the world as in the other hard, part of the world? Hard like, to tell them apart. Me. Yeah. Yeah. So then George says, he's kind of saying, like, if you look in the mirror, the two sides of your face are not the same. Like, if you put a pencil up to your nose, one, like, you're not symmetrical. And so they're all kind of having fun with that. And this is great. It kind of, like, really lightens the mood after all the fighting. So at this point, Poirot gets up to bed. He kind of says goodnight to Helen and, like, says that he's going to be leaving in the morning. And he says, he says some phrase that kind of is a little confusing. And Rosamond takes this opportunity to call him out as a detective. Ooh. Like she, she is, you know, she's quick. Interesting. Sharp. Mm-hmm. So Rosamond says that uh, Poirot had been pointed out to her at a restaurant as a famous detective. And again, he has these like huge mustaches. Like <laughs> you're not going to forget this face. <laughs> and everyone seems pissed off and kind of going like, who hired you? Which Poirot won't tell them. Yeah, obviously. So that night, now we're kind of into the evening, everyone's left and gone up to bed. Poirot can't get to sleep. He's just thinking of all of these things. Like he knows that he has the clues of what's going on and he's dreaming all of these weird things and there's a nun in his dream and he just thinks, if I could just see the nun's face, I would know who did it. And it's kind of like he just wakes up and he knows he knows who the murderer is. Ooh, okay. So I, I'm not done telling you all the facts, but do you kind of want to like, what? Are, who are you thinking? Like who's kind of drawing your attention right now? To be honest, I am very suspicious of both Susan and Rosamond. Um, the fact okay, the two nieces. Yes, the fact that they were both arguing over that green table, which seemed very key in the drawing room, and then also yeah. the fact that Susan was left, uh, but like Cora left Susan a lot of her things and was there when the cake was being eaten and refused to eat any. See, like mm. th- those are two that I have my suspicions up, but I'd love to hear okay. more. Yeah. That's a, I, I agree with that. Susan does seem very, just, there's something going on there. I will say, um, I, I, I didn't say this when it came up, but uh, Susan asked the same thing. Why did she leave all my, her money to me? And Mr. Enwistle kind of says, Cora, no one approved of Cora's husband. And Cora had found out that no one approved of your husband, Susan. So she, they think that she felt oh, kind of some relation. Okay. So that was the, the reason behind it. Not like that's, we don't know because she's dead, but they think that's what happened. Okay. Okay. So they're all, that's the nighttime. The next morning, Helen is kind of getting ready in front of her mirror, um, getting ready for the day. And she's thinking about, because she's looking at her reflection, she's thinking about what George had been saying about symmetry and faces. And she's um, thinking about Cora on the day of the funeral when 
it hits her and she remembers what she found so off on the day um, when Cora, when they had all been sitting in the drawing room and Cora had uttered the, but he was murdered, wasn't he? And she remembers that what she thought was off in that moment. Ooh. Right. So we're getting to it. So she immediately goes to call Aunt Whistle in the, there's always in these houses, there's always a phone in the hallway. So that's where the phone is. She goes to the phone to call him and she tells him that she had remembered what she had thought was strange, that she'd been looking in the mirror, and all of a sudden, um, she gives, like, a cry, and the line goes silent. Of course, she's just been hit on the back of the head! <laughs> yeah, so, Mr. Enwhistle, it's now from his point of view, he's trying to call her back and, like, get a hold of her, but he can't reach out, like, he's, he's talking to, like, the manager of the phone board and blah blah blah. When he gets a call from Poirot... Who explains that Helen had, she was like, had passed out. She had been, it looks like she'd been hit on the back of the head. She has a concussion and she's been taken away to the hospital. Oh God. Okay. So this is about 30 minutes later. And Poro says to him on the phone, she's been really badly injured. She may never recover. Oh my goodness. Okay. So that's not just an average, like, oh, you were hit on the head. You were like hit on the back of the head. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So then Poirot gives Entwist still, he's like, I need you to complete this task for me. It shouldn't be too difficult. I need you to go to the mental hospital hospital where Gregory Banks had been earlier this year for his, his mental disability. Ooh. And um, I think he gives, there's something like to find out some information. So then Entwistle hangs up, but Poirot stays on the line a minute. And sure enough, he hears the click of someone in the house who's been listening on the phone, hang up the phone. <gasps> Gasp. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, we're really getting, it's getting exciting. So then he hangs up the receiver, and I think he kind of, not immediately, but pretty close to, he goes to the post office in town and calls Entwistle back, because he had known that someone was listening, and he tells him, forget that assignment I gave you, it was it was fake to throw someone off the track, what I really want you to do is go to Timothy and Mode's house, get this object, and bring it to this address in London, but you, the readers aren't told what they are. Ooh, okay, I love it, okay. Yeah. So the family is saying that um, Helen had fell ill and fainted and that someone of her age, that's typical. But Rosamond's kind of like, she knows better. She's like, what are you talking about? She was hit on the back of the head. And everyone's going, no, she wasn't. She fell over and like, she fell over and hit her head. And Rosamond's like, that's cute of you all. But seems like too many coincidences, don't you think? Uh, Suspicious. I'm so suspicious. Yeah. (laughs) So then Hercule Poirot gathers everyone in the living room and he basically just announces that he's going to be leaving at 12 p.m. And the only reason he says this is because he wants people to come and talk to him okay. before he leaves so that he can get more information. The other thing that he says is that there is no reason to suspect that Richard Abernethy has been murdered. And he's being serious about that. There's no reason to suspect he was murdered. Okay, interesting. So then he goes and waits in the garden, hoping for people to come see him. Our first person is Miss Gilchrist. And she kind of tells him, I haven't said anything at this point, but you're now saying that Richard Abernethy wasn't murdered. And I thought it was really important to tell you that I I, I haven't been telling anyone to this point, but I overheard more of that conversation three weeks or however many weeks before the funeral right. with Richard and Cora. Okay, do tell. And they were talking about Susan and... Um, Greg and that he knew more about like the mental institution and something about like money and just she's kind of actually no she does sorry you're made to think that it's Susan but she doesn't say that she just says that they're talking about one of the nieces he's talking about his nieces and how he's worried about them interesting so that's Miss Gilchrist and then Gregory Banks comes by 
and he says that he killed Richard Abernethy. He's like, you're wrong. You can't say that there's no reason that he was murdered or there's no reason to suspect he was murdered because I killed him. Whoa, Gregory just confesses? But it's 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 this weird, he's here, you don't believe him. And the reasoning for that is he's kind of saying, yep, I killed him. And so now you're going to have to send me back to the mental institution and you're going to have to punish me. I need punishment, blah, 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 blah. And they've kind of given this idea before when he was at the mental institution that he has a um, like punishment fetish or something like that. Like he oh, craves punishment. Okay. And so they they think that even before when he had gone to the like the, at the chemist that he hadn't purposefully changed the the pills that it had been an accident and then when it happened he just admitted to it because he wanted to be punished. Interesting. Okay. And then Poirot asks. You just like he kind of says you just want to get away from your wife, and it's that kind of like yeah he's he doesn't want to be with his wife anymore. He doesn't want to be with Susan. Okay. He doesn't want to be with Susan. Drama. So next, Susan comes by uh, because she's looking for Gregory, and he kind of he says Poirot kind of tells him that uh, like Greg's accused himself, and she's like that's ridiculous. But then he tells her kind of more about this mental institution, and she kind of just doesn't really seem to care. Which is also kind of interesting. The other thing that he tells her is he accuses her um, of lying. The day of Cora's death, she had driven to Lychett St. Mary to visit, like to go to the house. And she's kind of like, no, I didn't. What are you talking about? And he's like, don't lie. The police know that there was a car parked in the quarry near the house and they have the license plate and they checked up on the car. I know it's your car. So it was either you or it was your husband. Is this a bluff or has he actually done this? It actually has. And so she admits to it and she says, you're right. I went around 3 p.m. I knocked on the door. No one answered. I didn't go around back. So I didn't see that the window had been smashed in, but I didn't see her that day. If you must know kind of thing. Ooh, okay. Yeah. And then the final person that comes to see him is Michael Stone. And it's again, this kind of idea where Poirot knows that he was lying about seeing those theater people because he had had his Mr. Gobi check up on it. Right. So he kind of pushes Michael and Michael finally admits that he's been having an affair with a woman and that kind of that Rosamond had found out about it. And it's kind of iffy, but he did, he like the, that woman would vouch for him that he was not anywhere near Coraline Squid at that day. So basically Michael now has an alibi that he didn't kill Cora. Yes, but Poirot kind of says, if that woman lo- loves you, she would say that you were with you were with her no matter if you were or weren't. That's very true. Okay, okay. So basically still but, no one so has <laughs> Yeah, no one <laughs> Nothing's gotten better. So now Inspector Morton arrives. He's come to the manor to start getting statements from everyone because now he knows that Susan's car was there. Um, he knows some other things, etc. So he's ready to start figuring out who did this. And Poirot tells him that he may have a concrete piece of evidence, but he's not sure yet. So he won't tell him what it is. But it's you kind of figure it's the thing that he got Entwistle to go get for him. Right. Which we still don't know at this point. Yeah. So Poirot then goes to find Rosamond and he kind of says to her, didn't you want to tell me anything? Like, I've been waiting in the gar- garden this whole morning. And she's like, no, I had nothing to tell you. Like, what are you talking about? And she also kind of notes that he has missed his train and she's guessing that he did it on purpose. And he's like, Poirot's like, yes, you're right. I did. I just wanted to get information. She also, she says that she knows her husband is having an affair with a woman, which we kind of already had an idea of. And she kind of laughs at the difficulty that his statement is going to be to the police because she's, she thinks this is hilarious that he's kind of found himself in this situation where he's going to have to tell them that he's with this woman. Right. He has to confess in order to like, 
save him from being seen as guilty. Yeah. So she's kind of taken this. She She's telling him, I like the idea that peop- other women want to have my husband, but they can't have him. Like, I want a husband that's desi- desirable, not like Susan's husband. Who would want that guy? <laughs> okay, weird relationships. Okay. Yeah, very weird. And then Poirot tells Susan that, uh, sorry, Poirot tells Rosamond, Susan is going to lose her husband. And so uh, Rosamond should give Susan the table that they were fighting over. Interesting. Okay. And then Rosamond kind of says to Poirot, I can't think why she's going to lose her husband. We all know that it's George who did it. And it's just like this, like, what is happening? Well, everyone is throwing everyone under the bus. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So Nikki, it is at this point that Poirot is kind of going to reveal the truth. So I ask you if you can tell me what you think is going on in any sense. (laughs) Okay. I just, okay, let me clarify. So Rosamond just threw George under the bus. Yes. Okay. Oh, trying to think. I still think, frankly, I still think it's one of the nieces. I don't really believe that George actually did it. Mm -hmm. I'm just trying to reason out kind of which, like, who is more to gain of this? Yeah. It might be, it might be good to kind of think of it from the beginning and like what was happening. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Susan and six equal parts so yeah so the 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 what you're kind of saying about the six equal parts like the death kind of benefits everyone equally the only person who's kind of getting more is susan because of cora's death but that's it's 500 pounds to like hundreds of thousands of pounds from richard yeah and like susan wasn't exactly thrilled she was like oh this shitty art or like not great art i don't want like she wasn't what i have to go through yeah yeah um I mean, Rosamond wants to put on a play, but also, hmm. but Susan also wants to open this. She's buying the storefront. Hmm. I know they both, they both kind of really like this money is going to help them, but we are, it's like, who has motive? Yeah. I w- is there anything that just kind of stuck out to you that I told you that you were like, that's weird. Why is she telling me this? Hmm. <laughs> well, I'm trying to think of like, if I'm going back to even when Mrs. Gilchrist was poisoned with that cake, she was with Susan and Susan refused to yeah. eat it. Right. And Susan's yeah. married to the chemist assistant who would be able to poison the mm. cake. It would be able to know to say no to the cake. Right. That's my who has, Yeah. Who has this ability. Right. So, so it's, it's the idea that anyone could have sent that cake by mail or dropped it off by hand, but like the two people in the house have kind of like Susan has the most um, ability to do it is what you're saying. And also like the fact that she said no, like there was no like question that she wouldn't eat this cake, like almost, you know what I mean? Um, Yeah. So I, I think I'm leaning more towards Susan. Towards Susan. Okay. So we're thinking, you're thinking Susan kills Richard Opernethy because she needs this money for her business. Right. And then she needs to kill Cora to shut her up and then she needs to attempt to kill miss gilchrist Christ. to shut her up as well right because she was especially when she's going through chorus things she was like wasn't she worried that did she ask about the conversation who asked after the conversation yeah so and whistle the lawyer asks and susan asks about the conversation right yeah so we're wondering how much did she hear exactly so i one thing i have to say is 
Poirot has just said that there's no reason to suspect that Richard Abernethy was murdered. Right. Okay. Right. You're right. You're right. And that was taken as, as fact. So he wasn't murdered. So it was really, it would really have to focus on Cora then, because if, if Richard was just, he just died, you know, natural causes, none of them could have seen this coming. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like who gains from Cora's death is more important, which technically they all do because her money gets divided up. But they're, I guess they're all gaining equally, but it's, it's so much lesser than Richard dying. Like, they just gained all this money. Why would they then the next day kill Cora? Right. Oh, man. <laughs> like it, would, it would you like to hear the solution? Yeah. Or do you want to keep guessing? Well, I'm just, because it would be easier, <laughs> it would be easier if Susan was like, sweet, score, I get all of Cora's stuff. But she was like, oh, what a pain. I have to go through all this, like, stuff I don't want. Um, yeah, so she doesn't see like she doesn't really have motive. It's almost like anti motive. Yeah, and then but also like at the same time, what did Rosamond gain from it? Staying quiet. It was like, what did Richard say about like you can only talk to our own generation? He was upset. Ah, oh, I would love yeah. a solution. I would love a solution. Okay, okay. So I'll start. So Poirot Poirot goes into whatever room and he kind of explains the solution. I'm not going to explain it his way. I'm going to do it my way. Okay, love it. <laughs> so I I would say, does it? Do you think it's weird at all that Miss Gilchrist has been in this story for a really long time? Ooh, yes. And when you're saying Susan was in the house to poison the cake, Miss Gilchrist was also in the house to poison the cake. And who gains from Cora's death? Who inherits things from Cora's death? Susan, but also Miss uh, Gilchrist. Gilchrist. Yeah. So I now let me tell you what happened. So we have that art collector like come in because Cora's asked him to come appraise her art. And he comes on the like the day after Cora's dead. What Cora didn't know and what Miss Gilchrist knew is that Cora had found a very expensive piece of art. Something that could be sold for five thousand pounds. Wow, okay. Like I I think they call it a Rembrandt or something like that. So Miss Gilchrist knows this and 5,000 pounds to her would make an incredible difference. Like she doesn't, she makes basically nothing right now. Yeah. It's a lifetime. So it's to her, it's that tea shop that she had before, uh, before the war that she couldn't have again. Now she can start that tea shop again. Like she has this money to do something. So what she did was um, it's likely that Cora's art was painted from real life. But there was one painting that we knew was painted from a postcard that was found in the house. Yes. So what what the Gilchrist woman did is she took the painting and covered it with a kind of a fake sketch. Oh, brilliant. Okay. Or fake, fake watercolor. So when the appraisal guy came, he wouldn't have seen anything. Of right? value. Right. Brilliant. Okay. So the item the item that uh, Poirot asked Entwistle to get from Moden Timothy's house was that painting and then bring it to an address in London for it to be appraised. And was it a real painting? And it was. Jeez. Brilliant. So that's, that's your motive, which is kind of crazy. So what happens was, and, but then you're like, but how, why did Cora say at the funeral or after the funeral, but wasn't he murdered? Yeah. So now to get into that, that wasn't Cora. Miss Gilchrist had dressed up as her. And because Cora had been estranged from the family for so long, no one had seen her in 20 years. So they wouldn't have really known what she would have looked like. Crazy. Okay. So, again, I, like, that's kind of why I was saying the fact that Richard hadn't actually, Poirot saying there's no reason to suspect he had been murdered. It was imperative that um, Miss Gilchrist went to that after 
the funeral to say that line, he was murdered, wasn't he? Because she needed it to seem like, Cora would tell the truth, she needed it to seem like Cora's death the following day when she killed her made sense. It, had it wouldn't to, make sense for any reason. Right, it had, it wanted her to think that it had to do with Richard's death when it didn't. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, she wanted it to think like it looked like someone was covering up Richard's death and that Cora knew too much. Brilliant. So I think she drugs Cora or something like that. Like there's something like to keep her like subdued for the day and then probably drugs her again and then hits her with the axe. So Miss Gilchrist like gave something to sedate Cora so she could go in her place. Yeah. Drugged her. And then it wasn't, no one would have suspected they, Miss Gilchrist said that she had taken a bunch of pain relievers that day that she died. So if she had anything in her system, it wouldn't be suspicious. So, and then, yeah. So can we talk about the cake then? Because this is a big... Yes. So this is where it's, again, it's like this woman seems genius. She knew that their attempt on her life should be made for it to make sense. If they're trying to shut Cora up, they would try and shut her up. Right. So she purposefully only eats half the cake knowing that she won't die from it. Or not knowing, but having that kind of assumption. Mm. Um, I'm... They don't explain that too much, but I think you're kind of just led to believe is that she wouldn't have died or that she would have called the doctor herself or something like that. Right. Um, because she knew that she had just poisoned herself. I but yeah, it's, it's like, I'm just imagining the logistics of like, did she make a cake and then ask someone to deliver it to her own doorstep? Like what a weird, but okay. Yeah. Gotcha. They just, they just find the, par- she's the one who finds the por- parcel at the doorstep. So there's no reason to believe it ever was delivered. Okay. She could have just put made a poison cake and left a bit outside and acted as if it was delivered. Exactly. Yeah. 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 It's just crazy. Um, what else happens? Have I cleared up everything? Mm-hmm. Okay. The other thing that she, that was important is that Miss Gilchrist had heard Helen talking on the phone and knew that what Helen was saying was incriminating to her. And so had to get Helen out of the way. So knocked her on the head with like a marble block. What Helen had remembered, and this is the looking in the mirror is I kind of mentioned this at the beginning, but not really, but Cora had this head twitch that she would do when she would talk to people. Right. And Helen recognized that on that day, the thing that she found strange was Cora was doing the head twitch in the opposite direction that she normally would had done it all her life. Okay. And the reason for that is that Miss Gilchrist, when practicing that head twitch in the mirror, had been practicing in the opposite direction because it was a mirror image of what she was seeing wow it was the wrong direction do we ever know if helen like (laughs) recovers or is she just like really hurt permanently yes um so poirot had lied on the phone because he knew someone was like over here listening um she she would be would be would be fine yeah and she'd been placed in a hospital and no one was allowed to see her okay so helen would recover Oh, and then the the way that Poirot had kind of figured out who it was is when they were having that Susan and Rose, you were right when you said that the Malachite table was going to factor into it. Okay. But it was in a different way. It was that the day of the funeral and after that, there was a thing of wax flowers on the Malachite table. But when Poirot had told Helen about Greg being in an insane asylum, she had dropped that vase. Right. And so they had put it away. But when Susan and Roseman are arguing about the Malachite table, Miss Gilchrist, to kind of calm things down, agrees with uh, agrees with Rosamond that the Malachite table had looked so beautiful with the wax flowers on it. Which she so wouldn't no have known. She, put... she would have never known that. Yeah, I know. It's this really, like, Ugh. 
when you when you know what to look for, that seems like such a key fact, right? Yes. If you're not thinking about it, it's just this like ordinary thing to say. She's just trying to calm down the situation. Wow. Is there anything else that you think needs to be cleared up? No, not much. I, I am so like upset that I was bamboozled by the nieces. I was so taken by <laughs> Rosamond and Susan. Oh. They, she, she does write these stories with like, that was purposeful. It's supposed to seem um, kind of like not possible. And so you think it's like the, like those kinds of things, like maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Like, George is more of the obvious guess, and so the fact that it's Susan is the not obvious guess, but Agatha Christie's just doing that to you. She's playing you. Gosh, she did. Play me like a fiddle. <laughs> Thank you so much for joining me today, Nikki. That was so fun. I genuinely oh, really like that. I got so into that. <laughs> great. I hope everyone at home did well, and we will see you next week. <laughs>